Hi everybody, today's episode's got bank robberies, prison escapes, tactical policing. They're all stories from the author of Drugs, Guns and Lies. He's our favourite undercover copper. If you haven't gone out and got his book, do yourself a favour, go and get it. They're fantastic stories. Today's stories are actually a sneak peek from his new book due to be released in 2021. It's part four of Storytime with Keith Banks, so enjoy. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in. So bring on the inspiration. We're hearing stories of Keith Banks's career in the police force in the so the dirty eighties, Keith. Is that how you describe them? Yeah, um, I joined in seventy seven. Uh, actually, I went to the academy in seventy five. I was sworn in in seventy seven. All through the um, the Bjelke Peterson and uh, Commissioner Terry Lewis years, up until the Fitzgerald inquiry. Thank God. Um, and then I uh, I resigned and uh, left into the corporate world in nineteen ninety five. So all up twenty years. Okay, so if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, please go back and listen to that. We recorded the first episode with Keith, well, I did, um, which was called uh, Guns, Drugs and Lies, named after his book, Um, and that is sort of an overarching um, story of Keith's policing undercover drug squad career and some very entertaining stories in that, and then we're doing some other story times. So go back and listen to that first episode and... It's story time. <laughs> <laughs> I just I have a mental image of me sitting in, you know, a little library surrounded by kids. <laughs> <laughs> and here's another story from the yeah. old days. Well, I am hmm. a big kid, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny. I, um, I did an episode with an ex-ASIO officer and then some mm. stuff came out about um, – uh, ASIO released a whole lot of um, secret stuff about them, and I was. She sent me the link and said, "Hey, this is up your alley. Have a read of it." Yeah. And I was so excited. It was talking about that they actually had like a position of Q, like off 007. Yep. And yep. I was so excited. And not only did they have like a cone of silence, they have a whole <laughs> whole suspended silence room. And I was like, "Oh my god, this is so exciting." <laughs> I'm totally going out to get some more tinfoil because I need to replace all my hats. <laughs> <laughs> so I am like a big kid. <laughs> oh, no, I get it. Oh, I get it. I think I think that was one of the reasons I loved being in tactical because you yeah, just had toys, you know, guns and toys and, and radios and stuff, you know, um, to play with. But um, I've been very lucky. Uh, I'm, I'm still, when I go back to Brisbane, I'm still able to access the, um, the current Special Emergency Response Team um, depot or headquarters, I suppose, where they've just got so many toys now. Wow. That I, I'm, oh not, God, I'm not allowed Keith, to talk about. But Keith, take me up there when the oh, lockdown finishes. <laughs> oh, sadly, you can't. Sadly, it, because it's all uh, it's all counterterrorism and stuff. You oh. just can't you can't get in there. But I'm I'm very no. Very, I don't want to break any rules. No, I'm very flattered that I can still get in there and see the guys. Um, <laughs> you want to I see the toys I've got now? Wow. I just find it fascinating because it's so it's just so removed from the world that I know. Mm, yep. It's growing and- up with too many action movies as an older, <laughs> with an older brother. 
and and may I say thank God that there are teams of people like that. And I just that say men it. because there are no women in there as yet. That will happen. As yet. Um, yeah, I I I take my hat off every day and say thank you very much to them. Mm, so Yep. 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 They're um unrecognized heroes in my view because they do a lot of work that we never hear about. Yeah, um, well that's part of the reason why I did the podcast. There you go. So one um, so today's story, Miss Fiona, um, yes. I, I was just going to have a talk about, um, again, the 80s, the 1980s, uh, the the age of armed robberies when, and it probably the early, oh, I reckon till up about 1983, 84, armed robberies weren't that prevalent, but they started to happen with increasing frequency, probably from 84 onwards. Um, and you could almost... You could almost set your watch by an armed robbery happening around bank closing time, which was three o'clock. You go, yep, three o'clock, there'll be a stick up any moment. Really? Is that because they were distract like the staff were distracted or less people in less the people. bank or less people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, less risk. Um so what when we when we call them good crooks, that means professional crooks, professional crims who would plan jobs, not not someone with a heroin addiction who'd simply get a sawn off twenty two and Sawn of twenty-two rifle and go in and you know hold up a bank, which used to happen a lot as well. Um, but you know professional crooks who'd, who'd plan their getaway, um, plan the job, plan the getaway, plan the angles, etc. And so, so they started happening a lot. And I was still part-time tactical policing then because my full-time gig was a detective. Um, but as I've touched on before, <clears throat> we were a part-time squad that were called in for any jobs that were necessary um, because it wasn't. It wasn't really thought of in those days that there was a, ne- um, a necessity to have a full-time special weapons team. So, so explain that structure, Keith. So you were a detective as a general in general policing. Yep. Yep. So, so what was, would that normally entail? Oh, I, at that stage, I was working in a, uh, a suburban criminal investigation branch office in Turinga, the part of Brisbane, and our area covered, gee, from Tawong all the way out to Kenmore you know, various suburbs. So we dealt with anything that happened in our patch, anything from stealing to murder. Yeah. Um, okay. we'd, we'd actually investigate, respond. Um, so we, we proactively investigated. We had our so own there informers. Wasn't, there know. wasn't a, like a separate unit for homicide and a separate unit for... There was, yeah. Um, but they would have to, if there, were, there was a murder committed in our area, um, they'd pretty much have to drag it away from us because we we had ownership of everything. You know, right. the homicide squad would certainly assist or if it was a, um, say it was a, a murder with no immediate suspects, um, then we'd be obliged to hand it over to them. But no, we did everything. It was, okay. it was a great place to work um, for, you know, an active detective. So, but I also volunteered for um, what was initially called the emergency squad that then became the tactical response group. Um, when we became a little more professional and, and reorganised. <clears throat> and I'd been part of that since, God, not when I left undercover and went back in a uniform, um, I volunteered for that. So I'd been in there for three or four years, I think, around the time, actually more, um, from 82, and I was involved in the shooting where my colleague was killed in 87. So the story I'm about to relate was 88, actually. Um, so I've been here okay. for quite some time. And um, uh, we'd... So this we'd is formed... after the MLC building? No, this is well before that. Okay. Yeah, well before that. So this is this is 1980, 
seven. If you haven't listened to the MLC building one, it's where Keith went in as a negotiator with someone that had a bomb. So you need to go listen to that episode. We're not a negotiator. We have to. Uh, we have to. Well, you went in out, as yeah. an no, unqualified negotiator. <laughs> just, just some some poor hapless guy who happened to stroll in there. <laughs> Dealing with random barristers that thought they knew better. Yeah. Well, it was one way to get paid overtime, I suppose. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> I actually did get paid overtime for that job too. Um, oh, good. Yeah, good. Um, so, <laughs> so the prevalence of armed robberies. So there was a um, there was a particular uh, chap criminal, Les Leslie Connolly, Leslie Connolly, who's uh, is deceased. He died in about two thousand and fourteen. Um, so Connolly had been conducting a number of armed holdups around the, um, the Sandgate and Redcliffe areas in Brisbane. And it's difficult to describe that quickly to anyone who doesn't know Brisbane, but essentially Redcliffe was on the bay. It was a sleepy little area near the water, beautiful little place. Um, and to get there, you had to drive from Sandgate, a suburb of Brisbane, across a bridge that went for, God, kilometre and a half or so, I think, to get to Redcliffe. So Connolly had been, um, he was a Sydney crook. He uh, don't know how long he'd been in Brisbane for, um, but he had been a drug dealer, quite a substantial drug dealer in Sydney. He'd uh, had an altercation with his drug dealing partner and uh, killed him with a shotgun blast in the backyard of the house they were sharing and doing business out of. He was arrested for murder, um, convicted, then appealed the conviction and represented himself uh, in the High Court. Very intelligent guy, and he actually wow. won, and he had the, con- had the conviction quashed. Um, and, to, you know, it's one of the <laughs> – I always think of Maxwell Smart when I say this, but it's one of the situations, if only he'd turned his mind to goodness instead of badness, as Max used to say, um, good in verse- instead of evil, he probably would have been quite a successful barrister. So does this mean that we have to say the story as alleged – all the way through? No, no, because he's, he's dead. Um, right. And also it's, no, it's, this is all, um, sorry, the, the what I'm about to tell you is all uh, contained in court records and, uh, and quite, um, quite above he, board. He got off though, so no, he got the, found the innocent. Sydney, the Sydney murder. This, ah. is, this is before we crossed paths. Ah, so okay. he'd actually uh, had the conviction quashed um, and then he moved to Brisbane and embarked on a little career of armed robberies. So he'd, he'd committed something like three or four armed robberies around that area and, um, and had a heroin habit. And he, so the local Redcliffe uh, detectives had conducted inquiries, identified him as a major suspect um, and wanted to interview him. So they, they were sitting off, it's called. They were surveilling from their normal CIB car um, a chemist that sold methadone. He was a registered methadone addict. So Connolly turned up to get his methadone. Um, they followed him away. He was, I can't remember what car he was driving, but he had uh, a car that he'd borrowed from someone, um, and they intercepted him. <clears throat> and as I touched on in the last episode, police in those days weren't tactically trained, and, th- and they weren't really tactically aware of, um, I suppose, identifying risks, etc. So here they were intercepting an armed robber, very similar situation to when Russell Cox got the drop on two armed robbery squad detectives. These three detectives intercepted him and uh, basically had a laissez-faire attitude. He was able to walk up to them, produced a firearm and held them at gunpoint and threatened to kill them. 
Um, he then stole two out of their three guns because I think one of them had his gun on his ankle um, in an ankle holster, and uh, Connolly hadn't seen that, but he certainly took the other two, handcuffed them, assaulted them, um, you know, sort of smacked them around with, it, with his firearm a bit, and sped off. So we were um, dispatched. That was in that was on the fourth of November, nineteen eighty-seven. <clears throat> so he um, he was on the run. There was another another detective who had an informer who actually pinpointed where Conley would be, um, or nominated a house Conley was going to be, um, it, which and that was on the the fifth of November and the sixth of November. So the day after he'd. Um, He'd assaulted the detectives and stolen their firearms. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, so we were dispatched to go to this house, and the house was that of a friendly. In other words, it was someone who was cooperating with the police and uh, who was associated with Connolly. Is that how you identified him as a suspect through? No, he was already he was already a suspect. Well, I, I didn't. I wasn't involved in that. The detectives had identified him, so I was I was a full time tactical guy then. Okay. So in my world, then we were simply briefed and dispatched to a high risk area. And the high risk was because he'd held them at gunpoint and he was going to turn up to this house allegedly. We were put inside the house and I had my team with me. <clears throat> we were equipped with high-powered firearms and uh, and we were all very highly trained and we essentially, had he turned up and had he been armed, he would have gone to God. It was pure and simple as that. Um, that is, of course, you know, if he'd threatened us, he would have been shot. Um, mm. So we were there to, to effect a high-risk arrest. He didn't turn up. Very disappointing. Um, okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> well. See, at that I stage, don't think you could say that. <laughs> well, it it was because, of, and I'm very open about this as well. This this was um, August, September, October. But this is about four months after Peter, my colleague, had been killed in a shootout um, mm. by Paul Mullen, and I had, I had embraced, um, I'd embraced an attitude from that time on that if anybody ever pointed a firearm at me or my people, rather than giving them a chance, he was going to go down. I didn't want to take the risk. I didn't want to have anybody, anybody of my colleagues killed again um, because of any hesitation. So I just changed my entire mindset and, and, and I'm sure I became quite homicidal and I was looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, hmm. That was part of my, what I now know to be PTSD. So yeah, we were. I was disappointed he hadn't turned up because, you know, you, you threaten to kill a copper at gunpoint, then you bring down what comes on your head, yeah. Um, and that that was that was the eighties. It was a pretty violent era. Um, so anyway, forgot about it. And uh, and then in, um, I think it was. I just have a couple of notes here actually. Yeah, the third of January. So this was um, November, where he'd mm -hmm. uh, he'd taken their guns. Mm -hmm. um, we were dispatched to look for him on the fifth and sixth of November. On the third of January, we were called out, um, and called out meaning we were brought into work, and we were giving a given a briefing by the Redcliffe detectives that Conley was that day meeting a gun dealer, an underworld gun dealer, to buy three automatic weapons. So automatic means machine guns. Um, they were high-powered rifles that had been converted to fire. Um, so I can explain that to, to, to listeners who aren't first with firearms. You so can, if you squeeze, I think you can hold down the, the trigger. The trigger. 
and yeah. it would just go off like a yeah that's right so you, you yeah. quite literally hold the trigger to squeeze the trigger hold it down and it will continue to fire until you release the trigger so it's a machine gun yeah so he, he was a very violent guy clearly so he was due to meet this uh meet this underworld gun dealer um, pick up three machine guns and it was going to take place um in redcliffe so i got my team together kitted out with whatever we had um and drove to Redcliffe across the one-and-a-half-kilometre bridge across the, the water and had a, um, a briefing with them at the Redcliffe police station. And there were other detectives from the surrounding areas as well. So this, this was to be and was indeed a big operation, and that was um, to take down a, a violent guy who was threatening to kill police. So, and it was after, as I, I, I keep talking about the, the murder of my colleague Peter, There'd been a substantial amount of publicity after um, the shootout, and uh, and some of that publicity in the media, his this is Paul Mullen, who was the offender that we killed. His de facto alleged that we'd murdered him. I mean, and that's just you know, that was just appalling, um, because it was it was just a thirty second gunfight. But at any rate, it suited her purposes to try and uh, make those allocations. So there was rumour around the underworld that that's in fact what we'd done yeah um from a psychological perspective it probably didn't hurt from my view um but the other side of the coin was it may well have prompted people to shoot at us first you know but it was out of our control mm. but that's that's important to understand because of what happened so um went there had the conference and then the surveillance uh, people with us as well so we, um, we being myself and, and three of my, uh, my team, got in the back of a, um, the old electrician's van, but it wasn't. It was, uh, it was a, a VW van that was made out just to, I think, just to sort of be like a, um, an updated version of a combi, you know, so very, very nondescript van. So we were sitting in the back of that with the surveillance guy driving, and, um, and Conley was initially to meet his underworld contact in the car park of the Brackenridge Tavern, which was a pub, obviously. Um, and on Sundays in those days, I think there was still Sunday sessions, so pubs weren't allowed to be open all day. They were simply open from, I think, 10 till 12, and then not open again from until 4 p.m. to 6 or something. So the car park was actually deserted. Um, so we went there with the surveillance guys, parked the van in, a not in you know, an out-of-the-way area with a, a view of the car park. And the plan was when he turned up to meet the, uh, the gun dealer, we'd emerge from the van, confront him, you know, police, don't move, get on the ground, that sort of stuff, and, and, and have him arrested. So, and I think I've said to you before, in my experience, a lot of criminals have a sixth sense. They have an intuition, and mm. I can never... You can never clarify it, you can never analyse it, but they actually know that something's not quite right. And for that reason, Connolly decided to change the meeting place from the tavern, which would have suited us, to um, a very public place near a retirement home of all places. <laughs> and um, so we to were told... In it he was, or near the retirement no, home? No, near the retirement home. And, and it was okay. actually visiting time. Um you know, so a Sunday where the families would come and visit their elderly relatives. So he decided to meet the gun dealer near the just across from the retirement home, um, sort of facing the water, I think, from memory. So we had to move from where we were. The surveillance uh, van was, you know, off we went. We actually ended up being behind a it was a Red Falcon sedan that Conley was a passenger in. 
and it was being driven by someone who turned out to be a criminal colleague of his from Sydney. So we happened to be behind them. Um, they actually pulled off the main road into a side street um, where the gun dealer was waiting. The Ford Falcon sort of went off the road <clears throat> and then stopped about or oh, maybe 10 metres away from the, the truck that the gun dealer had, and he had the three machine guns in there with him in the back of this um, you know, truck. And, uh, and Connolly got out of the passenger seat to walk over to where the, the gun dealer was and left his colleague sitting behind the driver's seat. Now, at that time, I just gave, I gave the, um, the go, we say go, 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 so get, you know, three, three goes, go, 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 signal, which meant that we would, um, we would take out Connolly that the other support team would take out the driver and detectives, you know, would all emerge on the scene, etc. So as we did that, um, we've we've driven straight past the Falcon, the door opened, my colleagues and I have jumped out. Um, one of them turned to cover the driver to give support to the other tactical team, and I had a laser vision on Connolly uh, with my one of my other colleagues. So I, I think I had an M16 Armalite rifle then. Um, and I had it trained straight on his chest, and I just used the, the normal command, which was police don't move, police don't move, um, in other words, freeze. And as I was going towards him, he looked at me, and I saw he was unarmed. Again, slightly disappointing. Um, so, <laughs> oh, I know. And uh, it sounds bizarre, but it, it's the reality is the reality. And, uh, and he looked at me and didn't move, and I said, get on the ground, Connolly, get on the ground now, and uh, didn't move. And at that stage, I was, you know, I was doing a lot of Taekwondo, and, um, and so I, as I got closer to him, I just launched with a, a jumping front kick and kicked him in the chest and knocked him down. And as he hit the ground, I, um, I stepped on his chest and put my M16 rifle to his head. And remembering my state of mind at that stage, you know, I, was, um, I was a pretty angry guy, and I said, I hope you get out because when you do get out and I meet you again, I'm going to put one in your brain. And, Jesus, uh, and, Keith. Yep. And then I turned him over and handcuffed or cable tied him. Detectives came up and took him away. So no problem. All finished. Had the debriefing and went back. And, uh, and, and, I, and, I, and I'd say these things, Fiona, to be completely open because I realised probably a year later there was a whole dark side of me taking over my psyche and my personality. And I made the decision to leave tactical after that when I realised what I was turning into. But this was well on the way, you know. Um, and I don't say it I don't say it to be proud of it, but I say it to be completely open about it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would have happily shot him and not lost a moment's sleep over it. So the amusing part of this comes soon, because you know when I tell stories there's always an amusing part. <laughs> I don't want to disappoint you. I either. love your story, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so anyway, Connolly was then arrested. He was charged um, and convicted and sentenced to, I think, sentenced to eight years um, with a minimum of six. Yeah. So for what? For purchasing or no, no, no. For uh, for for uh, kidnapping the police, for um, stealing the firearms, for the armed robberies, everything he'd done. So right. everything, you know, there, there were a number of charges uh, leveled against him, maybe 15 charges or something. So, yeah, he, he got, say, eight, I think it was eight years. And he was sentenced to serve that out in the notorious Boggo Road Jail in Brisbane. And Why Boggo, was it so notorious? 
Oh, it, it, it was a very old jail and it was quite harsh. Um, you know, if you, if you anybody Googles Boggo Road and reads about the, the way that the prisoners were treated in there, um, it, it was pretty, pretty horrific. Um, as much as I hate crooks, yeah, it was, they were pretty primitive conditions. Um, you know, from what I'm, from what I understand, uh, the allegations were that when you first went into Boggo Road as a prisoner, you were bashed by the waters just so that you understood what would happen to you if you didn't do the right thing. You know? And so I've just Googled it. It was open in 1883. There so it go. was a fairly yeah. old jail. Okay. Mm. Yeah, it was, and it was quite harsh. So this is uh, January. Yep. That's when yeah. um, we took him out. That's when he was sentenced. Uh, then he was sentenced, sorry. So January 1988. So remembering what I'd said to him, if you get out and I meet you again, I'm going to put a bullet in your brain. Remember that? Yep. March 1989. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. The, what was known colloquially as the Boggo Road Fun Run took place. But hang now, on a minute. He was in jail? Yeah, he was in jail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. Yeah. So I'd, uh, I'd uh, met him and had the conversation with him in January 1988. Yeah. March 1989, he'd been in jail for, yeah, 12 months or 12 so. 12 months, yeah. Now, the Boggo Road Fun Run was, um, <laughs> it was uh, in early March, and I, I can't remember the exact date. Um, it was a Saturday afternoon. And what had happened was that however they'd gotten them in, I, I can only make uh, an assumption through corrupt waters, but two, two guns had been smuggled into the jail and, uh, and given to the prisoners. Jesus. So... Um, this was a Saturday afternoon, and the jail was uh, the gate post was manned by about half. The, oh, so manned, manned about half the time by jail staff on Saturdays. They were, they were a bit slack. Um, so it was shift change time for the prison guards. It was about two o'clock um, in the afternoon, and there was a laundry truck driving that had gone into the jail, picked up the laundry and was driving to the double set of gates leading oh, to the, the outside. the old laundry truck trick. Oh, yeah, the old laundry truck trick, absolutely. <laughs> so as the, um, as the laundry van sort of trundled towards the gate, the, um, the main gate post was unmanned because uh, it turned out that the guard had gone out to sell raffle tickets to his mates. Anyway, oh. um, so, so there was nobody really watching when about 30 prisoners, as the double gates opened to let the laundry van out into the main sort of um, airlock, you'd call it, I guess, between the gates leading to the jail and the gates leading to the outside world, as the gates opened, about 30 prisoners just bolted and stormed the inner gate. So um, hang on a minute, these prisoners were out in like a yard area? Yeah, 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 out in the oval, you know, it was exercise time. Um, so this laundry truck's just driving through these prisoners yep. out and exit. Oh, yep. my goodness. Okay. Yep, to the main entrance, yep. And uh, and 30 of them just bolted straight through. And there was uh, there was one guard in, in that little airlock area that they forced to unlock the side entrance, and they forced him because they put a gun to his head, and one of them fired a shot in the air. Right. So this guard's gone, okay, discretion is a better part of valour. So he opened up the, the side entrance and there were, oh, God, I think, I think about 10 or 12 of them just literally ran down the main entrance to the outside world. And the Boggo Road Jail was right in the middle of Dutton Park, which is an inner suburban area. So it's a nice, nice suburb. So they've just bolted through. Um, I think, yeah, nine, maybe 10 or 11 of them. 10 or 11 of them got out. 
Um, a guard fired a shot from one of the towers at them and missed. And they all just bolted. And it became known as the fun run because, because as these prisoners were running down, they were laughing like little schoolgirls and they were out, they were gone. And Connolly was one of them. So over the next week or two, from a tactical perspective, we were called out to raid various houses and, and we got them all except Connolly. Now, I like to think that the reason we didn't get Connolly was that he took my advice because he wasn't found until about 18 months later living in Tasmania. Unlike the other crooks who'd gone to their mates and their mums and their girlfriends, I still like to think that he remembered my advice and he thought, I don't want to meet that young bloke again, so I might just leave. Well, I think Which that if you, I, I think that it's a bit silly if you're going to escape and then go to someone that you that you know to be like, hey, I don't know. You're not dealing with Mensa candidates here, Fiona. <laughs> oh, it's a bit disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. I just, you know, escapades, they, you can almost just predict where they're going to be. Common sense you know? is not common key. Yeah, no, exactly right. It's the Dunning-Kruger syndrome, remember? <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I do, I do, you know, like to think in my, in my little world in which I reside, that um, that when he was escaping, he would have thought, I'm not going to meet that bloke again because he told me he put one in my brain, so I might just go to Tasmania. So and, how did um, he get done in Tasmania? Um, I think from memory, he'd committed an offence down there, and oh. uh, and the police grabbed him, and it's similar to you know a lot of them when they when they're caught, um, just go, okay, yeah, it's a fair cop, you got me, um. And uh, and then he was uh, returned, sentenced, and died in two thousand fourteen. So recent. So he and he was returned to Queensland. Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, there you go. So you know the interesting people that you meet in a career of policing. Story time with Keith. <laughs> <laughs> so again, enjoy that. <laughs> and is this in your book? This will be in the next book. In the next book. Mm-hmm. Yep. Current book yep. is Drugs, Guns and Lies. Please go out and get it. Next book's coming out next year. So these are all sneak preview stories. Indeed Go back they and are. listen to the other episodes if you haven't already. Thanks, Keith. My pleasure, Fiona. Always good to chat. But I, I, love, the, uh, I love the way you go, oh, Keith, really? Did you? Oh, God. <laughs> Just because it's like. Because that's I, what we were like. Yeah, but also I don't come from it from a copper's point of view either. Like I've yeah, not had no. these wealth of experiences to build up that, you know. I know, and it just makes me, it just, it does give me some strange sense of satisfaction when I hear people's reaction. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Let me okay. stop this and record it. Don't jump off just yet. Sure. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 